If you are in the 81% of aspiring authors out there, stop aspiring and start writing with Readsy. Readsy allows indie authors to find and work with the best publishing professionals, from developmental editors to book cover designers to publicists. Just sign up for an author profile, browse the extensive marketplace of professionals, find the best fit for your project, and set a collaboration in motion. And with built-in contracts, protection, and mediation from Readsy, finding qualified freelancers, editors, designers, and marketers as a self-published author just got a lot easier. Go to readsy.com today to sign up and set your first collaboration in motion. That's R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. A year ago, we launched this podcast to talk about the creative process of the indie author. For some, that meant learning the industry for decades before even picking up a pen. For others, it meant embracing and escaping their lack of experience. And for one, it meant getting really, really successful and then redefining what that even means. Everyone creates differently, but creativity exists everywhere. So I started looking for examples of where is creativity in the world, and of course, it's everywhere. Over the course of three seasons and nine additional episodes, we've talked to a wide variety of creatives. But so far, they've all had one thing in common. They wanted to tell their story, specifically by self-publishing a novel. People (laughs) want to tell their stories. But even for indie authors, that's not always the goal. My, My job is to tell other people's stories. That's Tim Sigelski. Yeah, my name is Tim Sigelski. I am the author of The Creative Journey. Tim's a writer's writer. He teaches a class on creativity and also communications while simultaneously finishing a master's in communications and working in his university's communication office. So, in other words, the man can communicate. Uh, So, for the last 20 years or so, I've been writing in some capacity or another. But Tim doesn't write to tell his story or even to entertain. He writes to communicate. His book, The Creative Journey, basically started as a lesson plan. Then it became an email newsletter to his students, and then it became a best-selling nonfiction book, ironically written to demystify the creative process for a new generation of creatives. And it all came from a creativity class that didn't even exist before Tim thought of it, which he then proceeded to pitch to the faculty at Marquette University, having, you know, barely thought of it. The class didn't exist. Um, they They were asking for honors seminar ideas, and I was like, it'd be really fun to teach a class just... I make up that I create the, the topic, which of course is also terrifying because you have no place to start. And that brings us to the topic of the season. With creativity, where do you even start? Who can be creative? What does creativity really mean? Why do we create? And how can these questions help you create a best-selling book? Well, for one thing, those are the questions that Tim asked himself. When I actually first started teaching the creativity class, I just defaulted to who, what, when, where, why, and how. But as for the answers, although it took Tim many years, drafts, and classes to gather them, and although they'll take us the next seven episodes to share, in the end, they might be worth even more than a bestseller. The thing that drew me to his story in the first place is how universal it is. Whether you're composing nonfiction, fiction, or simply text messages to your friends, Tim's creative journey is one we'll all find familiar. Because if millennia of myths, novels, and Disney movies have taught us one thing, it's that every story, 
on some level is the same. Reflecting the hero's journey, there's distinct stages and you should expect those stages and you should expect uh, challenges and setbacks. Um, you know, I've, I've read enough books about creativity and some, I think, veer too much on one side versus the other. That creativity is this beautiful act of magic and others that it's going to be work and you're going to suffer for your art. <laughs> and, and the answer to that I think is both, you know, it's going to be exciting. You're going to have breakthroughs and you're also going to suffer and have setbacks. And that's all part of the same journey. Taking a book the whole nine yards from an idea in your head to words on a page from a scribble on a napkin to a listing on Amazon, that's easier said than done. But it's also easier than you'd think. I'm your host, Casimir M. Stone, and this is Readsy's Best Seller, the podcast demystifying the process of self-publishing a book for aspiring novelists everywhere, one episode at a time. This is our season four prologue, The Hero's Journey. If you have a passing familiarity with pop culture, you've probably realized that every story starts in the same place. Not literally, I'm not talking about how the new Star Wars trilogy, like the original, coincidentally opens on an attack by space Nazis before pivoting to a poor orphan on a desert planet who happens to be destined for great things. No, I mean, functionally. Whether it's Frodo celebrating his uncle's birthday, Harry celebrating his cousin's birthday, or Alfred prepping for a different sort of celebration in The Handmaid's Tale, Almost every story begins at the status quo, a look at the protagonist's day-to-day life before the introduction of the conflict that will drive the rest of the story. This status quo was dubbed the ordinary world by another professor-turned-published author back in 1949. In his book The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell first introduced the idea of the monomyth, a narrative in which a hero leaves his ordinary world for an adventure, then triumphs over a crisis, then returns home changed, which can be found in everything from the Odyssey to the Lion King to the Bible. These days, it's better known as the hero's journey. But how does a story structure pulled from myths, novels, and blockbusters factor into the work of an author who's dedicated his career to writing nonfiction, a genre explicitly about real life? We're going to try to answer that question by pretending that Tim's own creative journey was a so-called hero's journey, which starts in the ordinary world, where the protagonist faces conflict, but nothing they haven't already faced their whole life. I guess I have to go back to to high school when um, I hated writing, I wasn't good at writing. But there's usually something missing from their ordinary lives, too, even if they don't know it yet. Cue the call to adventure, a.k.a. catalyst, a.k.a. inciting incident, and I could go on and on, but I won't. This can be destiny, like Harry Potter's aforementioned memorable birthday, luck, like Nick Carraway's invitation to Gatsby's party, or a straight-up accident, like Dorothy being swept off into the tornado in The Wizard of Oz. Whatever the case, it serves to push the protagonist out of the status quo and set the stakes for the rest of the story. I had a history teacher in high school that taught me some of these things and made me a better writer. I learned the craft of it. I learned how to how to do it and how to do it well. And then I learned the impact of it, um, what I could do with it, whose stories I could tell, um, this powerful, simple uh, practice of telling other people's stories. Of course, the hero can't just pack their bags and hit the road within moments of the call. It's the hero's journey, not the hero's vacation. 
The monomyth is so popular because it introduces both conflict and realism. Uh, for some of us, leaving our Netflix and chill sesh just to set off on a dangerous adventure might be a hard no, so accordingly, the third stage is the refusal of the call, in which the protagonist questions, doubts, or even turns down the call to adventure. When I was uh, an intern, um, I worked almost full-time at the Associated Press my senior year in college, and... Um, there wasn't a lot of creativity and you had people just, you know, filing stories and, you know, in, in the subsequent years where there was layoffs in newsrooms that hurt morale. Um, but the, the thing I hated the most was this idea of like the inverted pyramid story where you just put a bunch of facts up front and keep telling more and more facts until it gets <clears throat> completely uh, mind numbing and in, in, inconsequential. The idea of the inverted pyramid is, is literally to make your story more boring as it goes on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if an editor wants to cut at the bottom, they know how to cut. And so really, you just, you just put, the, put the facts in the first couple of paragraphs and then just keep writing until you run out of space. Um, and that was, that was awful. It was demoralizing. And I knew that's not what I wanted to do with my life and not why I chose to write. It, it, even though I had some great, great experiences writing fun stories, it was just so demoralizing to write some of these breaking news stories that I was like, I, I don't know if journalism is where I want to go with my talents. And I went, I looked before I graduated to what it would take to become a teacher. But he didn't, at least not yet, because heroes do need to get out of their comfort zones eventually. They just need a push first specifically from a mentor. Think Gandalf, Merlin, Dumbledore, Professor McGonagall, Hagrid, and no, the mentor doesn't have to be an old wizard, but go check out our episode on tropes and you'll see what I mean. Regardless, the idea is that you get stuck and then other people help you get moving again. Like 90% of my, my work was really boring and, and I didn't enjoy it. <clears throat> and then one day my editor was like, all right, you're going to go cover... Uh, the hash house harriers and i was like the what <laughs> and she's like they're they call themselves a drinking group with a running problem i didn't know what she was talking about and and she's like okay you know here's here's where they show up what bar what corner and they're all going to be dressed in wedding dresses and um it's their annual um you know excursion across town and they drink while they run and you know it's this weird club and uh so i i got the chance to to write a fun story for for once and um that actually ends up in the book. Uh, many of them are serious runners with uh, serious running goals, but they also learn how to let loose within these structures, how to act like a kid, how to let their hair down, have fun. And um, I remember writing, uh, you know, the the lead um, about this person. I was like, this is my chance to shine because not every day you get to write a story about a drinking group with a running problem. I'm going to make this as interesting as possible because they deserve it. And uh, so, I, you know, I wrote my lead about this uh this woman liz and how she was having trouble running not because of the drinking but because she was running in a, in a wedding dress and um, my editor who i thought hated me was like that's a really good lead this triumph kicks off the second act of the story stories have historically been structured in three acts ever since aristotle started the whole beginning middle end thing in poetics one of the first writing craft books ever published but the five-act structure, think Greek dramas and, you know, Shakespeare, was actually the go-to through the mid-20th century. It wasn't until 1978, when screenwriter Sid Field brought the whole thing to Hollywood, that every story started being told in three acts. The setup, the conflict, 
and the resolution. Crazy how storytelling evolves until stories all start to sound the same. But point is, the mentor's push also pushes the hero into act two, the conflict. They also had some negative experiences in newsrooms where there wasn't a lot of creativity in, in, in the subsequent years where there was layoffs in newsrooms that hurt morale. First, however, the protagonist must cross the threshold. Whether it's starting down the yellow brick road or graduating from an internship into a full-time staff writing gig, this is the moment where, for the hero, there is no turning back. Uh, I stuck with journalism after college. Until, that is, the real conflict finally pulls up. And the only thing that stopped me is I, I was laid off. Our entire department was cut in the, the wave of um, layoffs in the like, mid-2000s. But we'll get to that in a second, because first, the hero's got to go through a series of tests, allies, and enemies. This step of the hero's journey usually constitutes the bulk of the narrative, so basically those montages you zone out during in the middle of a movie. I had good experiences and bad experiences in newsrooms. People were working around the clock, keyboards were clattering, and TVs were on, and radios were on, and fax machines were going. Reporters would be on the phone with people and just screaming at them. Um, and I loved the fact that everyone just, you know, was, was dedicated to what they did. It was just this kind of old-school environment. Uh, years, A couple of years before, um, layoffs started happening to decimate newsrooms. And then, towards the end of the rising action, climax on the horizon, uh, the hero enters the inmost cave. Whether that's Mordor, the Forbidden Forest, or the Caulfield family apartment in The Catcher in the Rye, this is the closest the protagonist gets to whatever it is they think they want. I got a full-time job. It was, you know, what I kind of dreamed of. It was a weekly. It was fun. I got to write really entertaining stories. And this was before sort of the internet. And uh, newsrooms thought that the answer to attracting young people to their product was to have weekly newspapers. <laughs> it sounds so quaint. <laughs> So all like all kinds of newsrooms around the country started investing in staff and young people like myself to write these hip young adult weeklies aimed at 20 and 30 somethings. And then you get smacked in the face by real life. And um, then they realized it, it didn't work and everyone was just going to Facebook and MySpace. And so they started cutting all of these weeklies. So I was a, you know, a casualty of that after you know, landing what I thought was this really cool opportunity. The ordeal, the eighth stage in the hero's journey, is not always the peak of the conflict, but it does always kick off the resolution. You face adversity, you get through it, and then all of a sudden, you're a hero. This was 2008. I got laid off uh, like two months before the financial crash. I started um, you know, just freelancing out of necessity, uh, just kind of panicking, you know, wondering where my next paycheck was going to be. Certainly didn't enjoy writing at that point. Um, I was writing for like construction magazine, trade trade magazines, whatever would give me an assignment. And um, luckily got a job at Marquette University. Uh, and I still work in the marketing communication office, still do writing for the, the university as part of my job. Uh, and, I, and I teach as well on the side. Act three is the hero's journey back. Tim saw the highs and lows of a journalism career. He learned a lot from it about creativity and about real life. But the only way to move forward for him was to step away entirely. So in H.J. terms, Tim had to seize the sword. Basically, that's the moment where the protagonist gets a win for a change. 
I started working in the marketing office, doing social media, doing marketing. And uh, because I had experience as a journalist, they asked me, can you teach media writing? And so our hero officially starts down the road back, which is not always much easier than the road there. They're like, you can teach spring semester, you, you know, you can prepare, you got six months to do it or whatever. And then um, about a week before classes started in the fall, my the department chair uh, actually DM'd me on Twitter and said, hey, uh, hey can you teach um, this semester? And I was like, oh, yeah, you mean in the spring semester? That's that's when we talked about me teaching. She's like, no, next week. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, OK, sure, I'll give it a try. And um, just started teaching, kind of just thrown in the deep end for a whole semester. Um, just figured out as I went along. The only difference is that by now the hero has changed. And historically speaking, their new experience pays off in the 11th stage of the hero's journey, the resurrection. Think Jesus. Often the real climax, this is the point where the hero is tested to see if they've learned their lesson. And if they pass, they can look forward to a happy ending or the beginning of their next journey. So how long were you you teaching uh, before you decided you wanted to keep writing and, in fact, self-publishing? It was one class at a time, honestly. It was media writing. I hated the textbook. And, uh, and, I, and so I asked the department chair if I, could, if I could use a different one or use my own material. And she's like, well, if you write something but you include these principles, you can use your own textbook. And I was like, okay, fine. So I threw something together. And then my social media analytics class, that was out of necessity. There was no textbook. So I just wrote my own, and that was my first actually reads the uh, book. And then the uh, creativity class, um, again, at first I was not planning on writing something. I was using just a kind of an off-the-shelf book that I enjoyed to teach creativity. But uh, to supplement it, I was writing these long emails and writing these messages to my class about what I thought they should also know and learn. And a switch flipped, and I was like, I kind of have the basis for an outline for a book here. And so finally, the hero returns home with the elixir, Campbell's fancy word for the reward, knowledge, or character development they set off to get in the first place. More often than not, the elixir was always with you all along. That's why it doesn't matter where you start or how you get to the finish line. No matter the journey you take, you arrive at the same place. Back in an ordinary world where nothing was the same. Yeah, it all comes full circle. It's, it is really weird how, um, how that happened. I thought, okay, well, uh, when I got laid off, um, I'm not going to be a writer and um, you know, I'm not going to be a teacher. And now today I'm a writer and a teacher. <laughs> we started this episode with the idea that creativity isn't limited to storytelling. It's everywhere. So much so, in fact, that a narrative structure used in fiction writing can be applied to the trials and tribulations of our own lives. I decided to kind of further this concept that creativity is everywhere because the class was comprised of business students, nursing students, you know, health science students, engineers, everyone. And I was used to teaching communication students. So suddenly now I have to appeal to an engineer. I'm like, how am I going to appeal to an engineer as a communication professor? So he looked for a structure that can be used everywhere, whether telling your own story or everyone else's. It was just this, like, literally this eureka aha moment. And I was like, that's it. Every Disney movie has this moment where the hero could give up or not. And it led me down to this rabbit hole of, oh, wait, all Disney movies have these themes. Oh, wait, what are these themes? Where do they come from? And I (laughs) I kept going, you know, deeper and deeper until I realized, you know, it comes from ancient myth. It comes from religions all over the world. 
And Joseph Campbell has already written a book about um, the hero's journey. And, uh, and that led me to um, reading Christopher Volger's book about the writer's journey and how writers can accompany, you know, uh, use and adapt the hero's journey for their own needs. And I was like, well, why not creativity? Why can't creativity be adapted as a hero's journey as well? Yes, The Creative Journey is a nonfiction book about the creative process, structured around the hero's journey, which we structured this episode of the podcast around in this season on the creative process of publishing a nonfiction book. How's that for Meta? But just because fictional structures are an easy way to frame our life's journey doesn't mean they're an easy way to frame a nonfiction book. Next week, we'll follow Tim into the classroom, and by extension, into the fray of finding a new way to frame your ideas so that others can learn from them. Because although it might seem like Tim already returned with the elixir, we all know that, in real life, the journey never ends. One of the problems I wanted to solve is giving myself a creative problem (laughs) to solve. (laughs) And uh, very meta. I didn't have the same type of outlet creatively And I found it in writing a book for my class. And that was the kind of creative problem I solved is like, is, is I like reading, reading about creativity, but I, I wanted to see if, you know, what else there is to say about it. And if I could do that. Brought to you by Reedsy, this is Best Seller. Over the course of this season, we'll follow an indie author's journey from start to finish in five chapters, exploring each step it takes to turn real life into a compelling read. Next up is Season 4, Chapter 1, Framing Your Mind. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Casimir M. Stone. If you liked it, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Our guest this season is Tim Sigalski. You can purchase his book, The Creative Journey, on Amazon. And you can check out his other works of nonfiction on Twitter at C-I-G-E-L-S-K-E, on Medium at T-E-E Cycle Tim, and at a variety of other outlets, including Runner's World, The AV Club, and Reedsy Discovery. This podcast, like so many self-published books out there, is made possible by Reedsy, a marketplace that connects indie authors with the tools that traditional publishing houses would usually provide, such as editors, book cover designers, and publicists. You can learn more about Reedsy on Instagram at Reedsy underscore HQ, on Twitter at Reedsy HQ, or online at R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com.